Here, please stand. We're going to read God's word. It's from Colossians 2, starting in verse 8. I'm going to read to verse 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Um, Good to be with you all uh, this morning. Kind of getting set up here. So I'm Brooks Harwood. I'm the uh, pastor with RUF uh, at the University of Houston. Um, I am Blake's predecessor, or uh, second person that came through. And we always, successor, thank you. We always joke, we say, Blake, you know, raised a, uh, a wonderful toddler, and now I have a cranky teen. So, uh, but no, we love it. It's, it's been really great. We've been here for four years now. Uh, my wife and I, Meredith, moved here from St. Louis um, and, uh, yeah, entering year five. So it's been really fun. So here we go. Here's, here's Colossians. We did a series in Colossians this spring, and Blake was gracious and said, just preach through that. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, the, the point of Colossians, it, this is a difficult passage. I'll just say that. There, there's a lot going on here, and we're kind of like, Paul, what are you talking about? But um, the overall point of Colossians is Paul saying, Jesus actually makes sense of reality. He actually makes sense of the deepest questions that you and I have. So when you and I have to get out of the bed in the morning, we ask, why am I here? Why was I made? Um, what's wrong with the world? What's going to fix it? You know, how should I actually spend today, this Sunday? What should I do? Um, and Paul is saying in one way, shape, form, or fashion, Jesus is going to actually explain that. I should give a foundation for that. Um, and with the question here uh, before us in this passage, he's basically answering the question of how can you know that God loves you? How can you be certain about it? So uh, a couple months back, uh, Meredith and I have a, a three-and-a-half-year-old named Sophie uh, who's super cute. And then we have a new little baby named June. Uh, we did not name her June because of the month. We named her June because of my grandma. But anyway, so everyone asks us that. They're like, did you name her June because she was born in June? It was like good reasoning, but no. Um, but anyway, Sophie was, uh, she got up in the morning. We kind of have like a morning routine where we get up and we play. Um, and I'll get her some fruit snacks and then eventually give her some food. And we, we do that every morning. And she asked me for chocolate. She recently figured out where chocolate was in the pantry. And she's like, can I have some chocolate? And I'm like, no, it's like seven in the morning. You can't have chocolate. I said, you know, we'll have that later. Go eat your fruit snacks. You'll be fine. I'm, I'm run off. I go do my own thing. I think I'm making something for her, maybe making coffee. And I hear this crinkling. 
And I walk around the corner, and she's on our couch. She has a full thing of chocolate in her mouth. The wrapper is crinkled on her lap, and her eyes are huge. <laughs> she's just staring at me because she knows that something is amiss. And I say, so the first thing I said, I said, Sophie, I love you, but you shouldn't have eaten the chocolate. Put it down. You can eat some later. It's okay. I love you. Why was my impulse, my first impulse, to assure her I love you? Because she knew in that moment that she had done something wrong, and she had defied me, and actually she might have lost my love. And right then, I mean, it's just this knee-jerk reaction that I have to assure her, you haven't. You haven't lost my love. And we are no different than that. We're not three and a half, but we're no different. Like, you and I have done things that make us think that we've lost God's love. And so we're scared. We're, we're not sure. And we do all kinds of things. We hide. Our eyes get really big, too, and we hang our heads, and we don't want to actually tell people how we're doing. We avoid certain religious settings because of maybe our past or our present, um, because we just don't think that it's possible that God could love someone like us. So we hide. Or we get super busy. Like, I mean, this part of the reason we do this is that we're trying to work super hard to prove to people that we're worth it. It's like we're giving each other our life resumes all the time and saying, look, I promise you I'm, I'm valuable. I promise you this, this I'm okay. And, and we do this all the time. We're super busy, and we kind of get trapped between the two. Either do a little bit of hiding, a little bit of avoiding from people, or a little bit of, you know, really busy micromanaging everything that people want to see of us. And that's what's going on here. And Paul is saying, if Jesus actually did what he's talking about here, then you can actually not just uh, believe that God loves you, you can know it. And he gives two reasons. He says you can know it because of the incarnation, and you can know it because of the cross. He says if you're not sure, look to the incarnation and look to the cross. Um, so Paul is writing here uh, in the 60s AD, so about 30 years after the time of Jesus. Colossae was actually a really diverse place. All kinds of worldviews, all kinds of people mashed together. They were even known for all kinds of things. They were known for their Colossian wool. You know, it's like, so they were, they were economically savvy. There's people traveling back and forth. So that means there's a lot of ways or at least a lot of worldviews clashing. There's a lot of uh, ideas floating around as to how you could know that God loves you. And, and the verses before that we didn't read in verses 6 and 7, um, Paul's essentially saying, if you started in Jesus, stay in Jesus. You know, if you started in him by grace, don't think that you have to stay in God by works. Because actually what, what's happening in this time, there's a bunch of people who have come in, we're not really quite sure who they are, but they've begun to teach, you know, maybe you actually began your relationship with God by grace, but you better keep it by works. Like you started off by him being kind to you when you didn't deserve it, but now you better work really hard in order for him to stay nice to you. And, and Paul is saying that's not how it works. This is, this is why he's mentioning in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He says don't let people take you captive. 
Don't let them kidnap you, actually, is the, the Greek word that he uses. Don't let them drag you off with philosophy. Now, I'm going to pause. A lot of people read this and they'll go, this means philosophy is bad. This means all philosophical thinking is bad. That's not true. That's not what Paul is saying. Um, Josephus, a first century historian, actually a Jewish historian, called two Jewish groups who he would have agreed with. He probably agreed with the Pharisees, but he called the Pharisees and the Sadducees philosophies. Um, Even in this day, if you were a magician, or at least known for that, you would be called a certain philosophy. Um, And so even Christianity could be called a particular philosophy. It's just a type of looking at the world. But Paul is saying it's not all philosophy that's bad. It's this kind of philosophy. It's a philosophy that's not according to Christ. He said, be careful of that. Why? He says, it's empty deceit. It's a worldview that's going to promise you that you're going to be filled, and it leaves you empty in the end. Whatever worldview that is, he says, avoid that. Be careful. Um, if it's according to human tradition, if, if your worldview is based on just a bunch of people making things up and working really hard to make themselves good, he's saying, be careful. Avoid that. It's not going to work for you. Um, and then he says, according to the elemental spirits of the world. This is super weird, okay? So elemental spirits is actually one Greek word, um, and it's referring to a lot of different things that were going on in this time. So the word, it, it, it means three things. I'm going to mash them together. So here we go. Little little geek fest. Here we go. The term is used for the basic elements of the universe. So whatever people believe made up the universe, it's these basic building blocks. And then number two it's also, the, it was used if you, like, were, say, uh, a mathematics genius. You would be learning the ABCs of mathematics. So it's the building blocks of that, uh, that thinking, uh, of that um, uh, uh, way of knowledge. And then the third thing, a little bit more spiritual, it, it was the belief that these were the spiritual forces that were the building blocks of everything that undergirded the universe, and so, and Paul actually uses this term in Galatians 4 as well. And if we mash all these things together, what he's saying is this. The Colossian Christians weren't necessarily denying their need for Jesus. They were just denying their soul need for Jesus. And what they're beginning to do is they're beginning to depend on these building block things. Um, anything that they can inject into their relationship with God just to inch them just a little bit closer to him they're saying, we have to do this in order to stay in right relationship with him. If I can just do the right things, if I can think the right things, if I can say the right things, if I can invoke the right spirits or avoid the right spirits, if I can avoid the right behaviors or wrong behaviors, then I will stay close to God. And Paul is saying, be careful. If, if you started by grace, don't think that you can continue by works, because actually, you can't work your way to God, and that's why he worked his way to you. That's what Paul starts talking about. Look at verse 9 and verse 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He's saying Jesus is God. He is he is deity dwelling bodily. Dwelling here is temple language. He's saying God actually dwells in Jesus, that all of who God is, is Jesus. And we can ask the question, we can go, where did Paul get this idea from? He didn't make it up. He got it from Jesus himself. 
You can look all over the Gospels. Jesus says and does some pretty weird things. In Matthew 7, he says at the end of time, people are going to stand before me. And depending upon how you respond to me is going to dictate how you're judged or not. He says in Mark 4, or he actually is, is uh, over some waters that are turbulent and they're scaring his disciples. And he stills them by talking to them. And his disciples say, who is this that the winds and the sea respond to his voice? Who can do that? In Luke 7, he's at a dinner party, and a really sinful woman, she's known for this, walks in. She cries over his feet, and he says, you're forgiven. And the people at the dinner go, who can forgive sins? We thought only God could do that. And then in John 14, Jesus says pretty flat out, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. When you're looking at me, you're looking at God. Paul can say this because Jesus said this. And he showed it. Yet throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he didn't say, thus says the Lord. It's really interesting. Whenever he talks about saying something that's authoritative, he says, thus I say to you. He doesn't say, let me introduce you to the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. He doesn't say, let me actually give you the source of life who's out there. He says, I am the bread of life. He doesn't say, you need the resurrection and life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He actually doesn't even say, let me introduce you to God who is the shepherd of you and of your soul. He says, I am the good shepherd. Over and over and over again, Jesus says, I'm God. And Paul is simply saying here, any amount of work that you think can get God to come here, you don't need to do that because he already did. Why are you working your way to heaven when heaven worked its way to you? He's saying he dwells bodily. You don't have to make yourself right. That's how he's working, and it's freeing. Um, a pastor named Tony Campolo, he uh, wrote a book called The Kingdom of God is a Party, and uh, he was uh, flying out to give like a big speech at a conference uh, in Honolulu, and uh, I don't remember where he's from originally, but he had a lot of jet lag, and so he gets there, uh, and he can't sleep, and so he just wakes up, I don't know, middle of the night, and he, like, can't sleep, says, I'm going to go find a diner. He finds this little dinky diner, uh, and he sits down to have some coffee. There's a few people in there. The cook serves him. He's minding his own business, and in actually walks a group, uh, maybe eight, nine, uh, ten prostitutes. He knows this by how they're dressed. He knows this by how they're speaking, um, and he kind of, he's listening, and over, he overhears one of them saying, hey, tomorrow's my birthday, they kind of make fun of her for this because they just don't really care. And she says, actually, you know, no one's ever thrown me a birthday party before. Um, they eventually eat. They do their thing. They leave. Tony then turns to the cook and says, hey, does she come here a lot? Uh, and what's her name? And he goes, yeah, she's here every night. Her name's Agnes. Um, and Tony says, what would it be like if we threw a birthday party for her tomorrow? Uh, Tony shows up <clears throat> with the cook, the cook's wife and they decorate the place. Uh, they put streamers up, they make it clean, they make it nice, um, they make a birthday cake, uh, they invite all of Agnes's friends that they can find, the word gets out, and so that at about 3 a.m., the diner is full of prostitutes, that's who Agnes is friends with, and the cook, and his wife, and Tony. Uh, and at about 3.30, Agnes walks in, and there's just silence. She they speak, and she looks at them, and she just starts crying. 
They all think, have we done something wrong? <laughs> um, and just for a little bit. And I say, sure. So she walks out and takes the cake. Presumably, she wants to share it with her family and show them. The door shuts, and Tony just kind of feels awkward at this point. And being a pastor, he just goes, hey, can we just pray? <laughs> and so everyone's like, sure. And so he begins to pray for Agnes that God will be kind to her, that she will be saved, that she will be loved, that she'll be uh, cared for. And he ends the prayer, and people begin to talk. And the cook looks over at Tony and says, hey, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. You belong to a church that throws bread. He goes, what kind of church are you a part of? And Tony said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And then the cook turns to him and says, no, you don't. There's not a church like that. If there was, I'd join it. Why is that compelling? That's compelling because Tony, a Christian pastor, moved toward Agnes in love. It love caused him to throw a birthday party for her. Love caused him to listen and to hear her out and to invite her in and try to welcome her closer. Because you draw close to what you love. And Paul's saying that's who God is. He's not distant. He's not far. He doesn't look at you and stay back because of the wrong that's in your life. He loves you and moves to you. Our issue really is we just don't believe that's the God that exists. We don't think that that God is out there. Um, Every world religion, every worldview essentially says, make yourself right for God to come to you. And Paul is flipping that completely. He's saying he's already done what you need to come near to you. And I think what's true is that you could even bend two different ways on this. You might, become, you might be the kind of person that becomes super religious and super high performing because you're trying to make yourself right with God and other people. Or you can be super irreligious and super low performing because you're kind of like, why try? Like, I tried it. It didn't work. I'm just going to give up. And you might bounce between the two. Um, but if Jesus is God, then he came near. And I mean, th- this changes everything. It changes a number of things. One thing it changes is this. If Jesus is God, that means God knows what it's like to go through what you go through. That he knows what it's like to suffer because he suffered. He knows what it's like to cry. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to have his friends deny him. He knows what it's like to be pushed off and pushed out. He knows what it's like to be tempted because Jesus actually was tempted. Evil whispered in his ear to try to get him to do things that he knew would destroy him. And if Jesus is God, then he knows yeah, exactly what it's like to feel the way you and I do when we feel our worst, when we feel our weakest, when we feel our most broken and down. Because on the cross, that's what happened to him. He was broken. He was made weak. He was killed. And what, what's so amazing about Christianity is that the message is not God draws near to you because of how perfect you are. It's rather God draws near to you because of how imperfect you are. It's, it's not... He will draw near to you if you're sinless. It's he drew near to you because you're so sinful. That's the message. And, and, and this, is, this is incredible. That means that you and I can stop trying to be perfect all the time. 
I don't know everybody in this room, but if you talk to me afterward and you ask me a question, I'm not going to necessarily disclose like everything that's deep, dark, and horrible about my life, but you know, I, I, I'm free to be honest with you. I can stop pretending. If this is true, I can stop pretending to you. We can, you can actually tell the person next to you what's going on because you have someone, you have a savior who saved you, not because of how good you are. It also means that you kind of can do religious things differently. Like you don't have to think you're reading the Bible <clears throat> just out of <clears throat> fear that God will stop loving you if you stop. You read it because you want to hear about the God who already does love you. You don't pray just because you want him to only do good things for you. You pray to him because he already has done good things to you. And yes, you hope for more, <laughs> but you pray to him because he already cares. You don't come to church because this is a way in which you're going to make yourself better before him. You come to church just because God kindly saved you and then kindly attached you to other people that you would never attach yourself to otherwise for your good and for their good. It frees you to serve people differently. You know, it's amazing if, if the gospel is true, if you're saved not by what you do because of what he's done, you don't have to go serve somebody today um, in order to inch your way closer to God. And in reality, when you and I do that, we're actually using people. We're not serving them. We're serving ourselves. We're trying to get something out of God through them. But what this does is it allows you to serve somebody freely because you're not doing it to get God's favor. You're doing it because you already have it. it. It just changes everything. The incarnation is true. He worked his way to us because we can't work our way to him. And this is incredible. This is good. And, and this is why Paul, in verse 10, kind of transitions, because I think the question you and I should have, or you will have one day, someday, uh, goes on this, verse 10. For you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Because I think the question is this. Yes, I might, if you're a Christian here today, you might say, yes, I trust this. I trust that he came for me. I trust that he fills me, but I don't feel like he fills me. It doesn't feel like it. What do I do with that? And Paul says, yeah, you can't just look at the incarnation to know that God loves you. You have to look at the cross too. You have to look at the cross. Really, what you have to begin to see is that God joins you and I to Jesus' past so that we can be certain of his love in the present. He links you to stuff that happened to Jesus back then so that now you would know that you're loved. And this is what he starts talking about in verse 11 and 12. He starts talking about circumcision and baptism, which seems out of left field, but the reason Paul does this is because these were the acts of joining God's covenant people. This is kind of the, uh, the entrance, not salvation, but the entrance of getting into God's family, if you will, the church or um, in the Old Testament, Israel. It talks about circumcision. This is the Old Testament sign of being brought into the covenant community of God. It was performed on either male babies who were eight days old or new male believers. And without being you know, crazy graphic about this, the idea is that it is a shedding off of flesh producing blood that ends up uh, bringing somebody into the covenant community pure. And, and Paul is saying, spiritually speaking, that's happened to you in Jesus. His shed blood has brought you into God's covenant community pure. And he talks about baptism. He's going to another sign to try to, you know, up the ante and, and prove his point. This is the New Testament sign of water 
being brought into God's covenant community. And what it's supposed to uh, represent is that God's judgment, his, his floodwaters of judgment comes over you, and yet you've come out the other side pure and alive. And yet again, he's saying, this has happened to you already in Jesus. He says, look at, look at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He's saying, you experience God's judgment. It's as if you've shed your blood and you've experienced God's judgment now. Final forgiveness. Like there's nothing more you can do. Look at it. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Not some, not most, all. All the things that you hate about yourself, all the things that you wish to hide, all the things that you don't really want people to know, those are gone. They're forgiven. They're done away with. Um, he says this record of debt, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt, a piece of paper with its legal demands. This would be like an ancient IOU. It would be a piece of paper listing all the things that you owed the Greco-Roman Empire, and you had to pay it back. And Paul is saying, like that, you have a debt of sin before God, and it's gone. It's been paid. And, you know, regardless if you're a Christian or not, I remember before I was a Christian, I remember that I did things, I thought things, I said things that, honestly, my family and friends approved of. Um, and yet there was something in me that still knew that there was a record of debt on me. Like, I just felt it. I felt that something was off and something was wrong. And I tried to make it right on my own, and it just never worked because it's still there. I came to this horrible conclusion that anything you've done in the past is in the past. It's done. You can't do away with it. And, and then I thought, well, I'm going to be the best that I can in the future. But then how do I know I've ever been good enough? You don't know that either. And Paul is saying, that's solved because the regular debt's gone. Your debt was put on him. And when he died, it's done. It's canceled. He says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's amazing. Um, Jesus's final words were not, get to work, uh, keep striving. Those are Buddha's final words. When Jesus died, he didn't say, you better get this right. You better not mess up again. You better not sin again. He's not making light of sin, but these are not his last words. His last words were, it is finished. It's done. The things that you and I feel like we can't work off, he goes, yeah, you can't. That's why it's finished. I've done it. I've finished it. It's gone. Richie Sessions, he, he was the pastor uh, with RUF at Vanderbilt. He's now an area coordinator. Um, kind of paraphrase this from him. He goes, the best thing that will happen to you already did 2,000 years ago in Jesus. The best thing that ever will happen to you already did. You don't have to prove anything anymore. You don't have to work for anyone anymore because he already worked his way to you. Why don't we believe this? <laughs> you and I do not believe this because, honestly, we're just perpetually looking at ourselves. Because if you look at yourself, you're going to realize you're not that great. 
I love you, the ones I know of you. <laughs> um, but you and I, we can say in, in a non-mean, non-cruel uh, way, there are things about you that aren't lovable, that are not good. Um, and if you keep looking at that, of course you're going to doubt if God loves you. But he's saying, stop looking at what you've done. Look at what he did. Uh, Dick Hoyt, he um, <clears throat> had a son named Rick um, who was born a spastic quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. It basically just meant he had no, his son Rick had no um, functioning of his uh, torso and of his legs. Couldn't move his arms, couldn't move his legs, um, and this would degrade over time. And in the late 70s, Rick was in middle school, and he just turned to his father, I don't know why, but turned to his father, and he asked him if his dad could help him finish a five-mile run. And so Dick, not a runner, and then he pushed Rick, his son, in a wheelchair for five miles, and they ran the race together. Um, Dick says this about his son. After their first race, Rick said, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. After their initial five-mile run, Dick and his dad began to run, uh, Dick, uh, without his son, began to run with a cement bag um, under a wheelchair to kind of mimic the weight of his son while his son was in school as he kept training to get better and better because his son said, can we run more races? And his dad said, sure. So their next race was the Boston Marathons, 26.2-mile trek uh, in downtown Boston. And Dick pushed Rick in a wheelchair for 26 miles. Then a triathlon, that's a one-mile swim, a 40-mile bike ride, and a 20-mile run. Dick swam the mile, pulling his son in a raft. He biked the 40 miles on a bike with his son riding along and then pushed him 20 miles on the run. Then an Ironman came around, that's a 2.4-mile uh, swim, a 112-mile bike ride, and a 26.2-mile run, which he did with his son, over the next 39 years, uh, Dick would carry his son through 1,100 races. Uh, he did 72 marathons, six Ironman triathlons, 32 instances of the Boston Marathon, and they were inducted in the Ironman Hall of Fame in 2008. And this is what's amazing. Dick said this about his son. He's the one who's motivated me because if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be out here competing. What I'm doing is I'm loaning Rick my arms and my legs so he can be out there competing like everybody else. This is actually who God is. This is actually who Paul is saying exists. He's a God that actually comes here and does the work for you because you can't. You are in the race. You're doing it. But he's carrying you. That's exactly what he's saying about Jesus. He's saying if you keep looking at yourself, you'll realize you're not fit for it. But if you look to him, you'll be okay. Very quickly, a couple of things this should change in our lives or at least help us with. I think we'll have less shame. He ends in verse you know, 15 talking about Jesus triumphing over shame, having victory over it. You can basically just stop beating yourself up all the time. Um, you can say, look, the God of the universe saw the worst of me and yet still did this. I don't have to feel so bad about myself all the time. Another thing is you can have more gratitude. You can say, look, the God of the universe did this for me. I think we might err on one side or the other. 
you can begin to become super grateful that God even began to do this, caused the God of the universe to come here and do this for you. But yet he still did. So it still causes gratefulness even in the midst of the times where you're not uh, measuring up. This is amazing. You can have gratitude even when uh, life is hardest. Then you can throw birthday parties for prostitutes. Why? What this means is you can begin to start loving really unlovable people. Because what Paul outlined here is that the reason Jesus did this for you is not because you're great. It's because you're not. It's not because I'm great. It's because I'm not. And he loved me anyway. And so I get to move toward people who I actually don't want to love. There is somebody in your life that this passage should um, put before you as the person that you don't really want to love. Um, if you're a kid, maybe it's a bully at school. Maybe it's somebody who, uh, a coach who's terrible to you. Maybe it's a teacher who, you know, kind of said a comment to you that really hurt. Maybe it's a friend who gossiped about you. That might be the same for adults, too. If you're, if, if you're an adult, I mean, it's somebody in your family. It's, it's your spouse. It's your roommate. It's someone here in church. It's a coworker. It's somebody in your life. You just go, well, that person just doesn't deserve my love. Jesus loved you anyway. So how do you know God loves you? How can I know God loves me? He came here, and I said that right now, today, I can say I'm good with God. This is good news. Let's pray. Father, I, I just thank you for this good news. I thank you that it's true. I thank you that you did come here. You did um, cause us to be uh, the object of your favor and your love. Thank you for giving yourself up for us so you wouldn't give us up. Um, thank you for loving us when we're not that lovable, and I pray that you would convince us of that today and then move us toward people uh, who are difficult for us to love as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.